on with our study through the Bible. And um, we've been doing this for several months now, trying to work our way through the Scripture. I do want to say I appreciate uh, the kind words that have been relayed to me, those of you that have expressed how much you're getting out of this series of studies. I, I appreciate you letting me know that. Sometimes I, you know, I, I get into this and, and I, I enjoy it and it feeds me. And um, I, I just, I like to know that somebody else is feeling fed from it as well, that you're getting some things out of it as well. And we're taking much more time than what I ever intended to take. My original plan was that we would only spend one Sunday per book, and I think we did that with the first, maybe the first book, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it didn't take us long until we weren't finishing up one book per Sunday, um, but we're spending more time than that, and I, I don't really apologize to you for it. I've just, I've just decided I don't care how long it takes. I don't care if it takes from now until the Lord comes, uh, or I retire, or whatever happens. I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what, what it takes. What I just, uh, I just want us to get as much from the Bible as we can get. I, I love this book, and I suppose one of the highest compliments, one of the highest compliments ever paid to me by someone that I uh, was privileged to pastor, they uh, were leaving the church on good terms and, and uh, taking another job somewhere, and I had him get up and say something to the church, and, and he, he said the thing... I remember now if it was him or his wife, I had them both speak, but one of them made the comments that the thing that I appreciate about Brother Regan is he has just taught us to love the Word of God, and it seems like it is that he enjoys digging into the Scripture, and it's caused us to enjoy that as well, and that's, I consider that a great and high compliment. That really is the way I feel about this book. I love to see what I can find in this book, and, and then to share it with you, and I hope that you are being blessed as we uncover truths and nuggets uh, in the Scriptures, however long it takes us to get there. And uh, I hope that none of you are in a huge hurry. Some of you may be hoping I'll hurry and get to the book of Revelation, but that may be one of the few books we actually only spend a week on. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Or maybe the Lord will just fulfill it all before we get there and make my job a whole lot easier. Praise God. But we have been trying to work our way through, and uh, we are now in the book of First Kings. We uh, spent some time last Sunday morning uh, dealing with First Kings. Didn't make it very far. Um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I will do some review, but uh, let's... Focus our attention right now at 1 Kings chapter 11 and verses 9 through 13. The Bible says the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend or tear 
the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it. In thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all of the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake which I have chosen. Praise God. An interesting passage to use as a text, but it really is the focal point of First Kings, and we'll understand more about that in just a few moments. Amen. Um, so let's pick up today with First Kings part two, and let's let's pray together right now. Let's ask the Lord to uh, talk to us and to talk to every heart that is in this house today. Could we do that, everybody? Let's lift our voices to the Lord right now. Jesus' name. Would you just lift your hands to him right now? Let's love him one more time before you're seated, everybody. Let's love the Lord. I love you, Jesus. I thank you, God. I thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Please allow me to do a few minutes review, and I see we're already very late getting started, so I'm going to try to go through this review very quickly, but for the sake of those who were not here last week, I do feel it is imperative that I do that. The book of, of uh, 1 Kings could easily be called the book of division. Um, this book is the book that records the division, the dissolution uh, of the unified kingdom of Israel. Up until this point, we have followed the, uh, the leadership of King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then his successor, David. And then we are uh, about to start looking at the reign of King Solomon, the third king of Israel. And uh, at the conclusion of Solomon's reign, when Solomon is dead and his son takes the throne, the kingdom is then divided. And uh, again, I, I just I try to help you to understand it would be uh, much like what we had going on during the time of the Civil War, except it was much more defined um, because Israel literally split into two different countries each country having its own capital, each country having its own king, and, uh, and so it became two separate kingdoms. And the central feature of First Kings is this act of division that, that separates the kingdom from one into two. Now, we pointed out to you as we looked at it, and these things are really just kind of trite, but, but they are... Uh, tidbits of information that may be important to you as you try to study it. Uh, first and second Samuel, we pointed out to you originally were just one book 
the book of Samuel, and uh, then someone divided into two, and we've kind of kept it that way. Same thing was true of First and Second Kings. Uh, they were originally just one book, but somebody came along and divided them into two. Got no problem with that. It's not that big of a of a deal. It helps us actually in our studies to find things quicker and, and locate things, and nothing is being taken away from the Bible by making those divisions uh, into books and chapters and verses. But uh, be that as it may, First um, and Second Kings open with the uh, accession of Solomon, uh, with him becoming king, and then they close with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. At the beginning, we see the temple being built. At the end, we find the temple being burnt. And I think that's an important thing for us to see. There's a lot of things that happen over this 120-year period of time that is found in 1 Kings. And, and it goes from a state of great glory to a state of unbelievable disarray. Amen. And there was a single um, point in the history here that changed all of this and turned this. Um, now, I'm sorry, I said 120 years. Actually, between the two books, it's a period of 400 years. In First Kings, we're dealing with about 120. Uh, in the two books together, we cover some 400 years. Uh, now, we, we talked about nobody really knows who the author of First Kings is. Uh, there is some evidence, some suggestion that perhaps it was the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, it doesn't matter to me who did it. I firmly believe whoever the author was, he was divinely inspired of God. I believe the Bible as we have it today is divinely uh, authored. It is God-breathed. Amen. I believe God has, pro has uh, protected and preserved uh, his word as he wants us to have it. Praise God. Amen. Uh, as we look at 1 Kings, we find this book falling into two main parts. Uh, there are 22 chapters in the book, and, and it's literally divided in half. The first half of the book, the first 11 chapters, deal with Solomon, how he becomes king, what happens during his reign. And then, beginning with chapter 12, uh, we begin with the son of Solomon taking over, Rehoboam taking over as king, and, uh, and then the kingdom is divided. And from chapter 12 through chapter 22, those last 11 chapters, we actually are following not just one king anymore, but we're following two different kings over two different nations. They're still the Jewish people. Everybody's with me. Still the Jewish people, but it's two different lines. Uh, one line, uh, the, the, uh, uh, as, as the kingdom divides, it divides north and south. And uh, in that division, uh, the southern kingdom, which was Judah, uh, the sons of David, his sons, his grandsons, great-grandsons, and so on, rule over the southern portion, uh, which comes to be known as Judah. The northern part uh, is known as Israel. It has Samaria as its capital. And in uh, Samaria, it's kind of every man for himself. It's not just kings passing it on to their kids, but there's all kinds of overthrows. There's all kinds of, uh, of things that take place, and different individuals become king over Israel, and, and as we pointed out to you before, nowhere in the northern part of this uh, kingdom, that northern kingdom called Israel, they never in their history ever had one good king. Never. Never. They were all Jewish people, but none of them sought to please God. None of them. Uh, and there were very, very few in the south in the kingdom of Judah. Very few that did. 
Um, now, the central message of 1 Kings is, and, and it's unmistakable, as you study this book, there's really no way to get around it. There is one message, and that is that disruption comes through disobedience. That's the message that 1 Kings is trying to give us. You cannot disobey and get by with it. There will be consequences to your disobedience. And I say that this is the central focus and the central theme. And, and, and really it is literally central to the book. Because you've got, ele- you've got 22 chapters. You divide it in half as 11 chapters. The disobedience is judged in chapter 11. And so things change from that point forward. It, it's, it's as clear as can be. Just as was Second Samuel uh, with David's sin divided in half and things changed from the time of his sin. The same thing happens in First Kings. Now, the outline of the book, as I said, you can really just break it into two parts. And that is the reign of Solomon, chapters 1 through 11, which covers 40 years uh, of, uh, during which Solomon reigned over uh, the, the United Kingdom. And then chapters 12 through 22 covers a period of about 80 years. And this was the divided kingdom when it, it uh, is separated into two entities. That's the simplest way to divide the book, but we'll break it down a little further than that for you. Chapters 1 through 4 deal with the early acts of Solomon, the things that he first did as he becomes king. Uh, then chapters 5 through 8 talk about the building of the temple of God and the palace of the king. Describes a lot of those things. And then uh, chapters 9 and 10 uh, just give us some insight into the fame and glory and riches and wisdom of Solomon. And then we've got chapter 11, uh, talks about Solomon's decline, his judgment, his death. All right, Uh, then we get into the second half of the book. Chapter 12 talks about Rehoboam and how God goes about disrupting or dividing the kingdom into two. That happens in chapter 12. Uh, Then chapters 13 through 16 just give us a delineation of the various kings of both Judah and Israel. Uh, And then in chapter 17 we are introduced to the prophet Elijah uh, who was a prophet not to Judah that at least had a similitude of trying to live for God but to the more wicked of the two kingdoms. God sent the greater prophet to the more wicked of the two and I I pointed out to you last week, I find that extremely interesting that God raised up such a mighty prophet in the midst of such a wicked nation. Amen. And I believe that's just the way God works. And I made the, the point last week that we, as we watch our country just go down the tubes, and that's what's happening. I love America, but I'm telling you, we, we're, we're making tragic, tragic errors we are headed absolutely in the wrong direction right now. But I'm just telling you that no matter how wicked America gets, you just get ready for God to show himself more and more powerful the more wicked the world becomes. For one thing, we're going to finally start praying like we ought to. Well, I snuck that one in on you. You weren't expecting that at all. You... you you're ready for me to just kind of lambast our president and Congress and all that. But no, no, no. I, I'm telling you. Look, I, I'm telling you, we get what we deserve. You hear me? We get what we deserve. America is getting what it deserves. 
And it's not over yet. And I'm telling you, as we continue to elevate homosexuality and promote abortion and do all the other things America's doing right now, it's not going to get better, my friend. It's just going to get worse. And we're going to get everything we deserve as a country. But in the midst of that, I believe God is going to bring His people back around to the place where we start praying like we ought to pray. We start seeking God like we ought to seek God. And as a result, God's going to raise up some men amen, that are going to promote the cause of God in the midst of a wicked nation. Well, hallelujah. Amen. So we, we talked about last week, we started into chapter 1 and talked about the book opening with uh, David on his deathbed and all the things that, that were happening there. David was uh, well up in years and uh, uh, had already exceeded the lifespan of most uh, Jewish men at, at that time period. Uh, I read where they say that the um, life expectancy at that point was about 60 years um, and David was, most men think, about 69 at this point. And uh, so that was considered a very aged man in his day. And, and he's on his deathbed. He's, he's got circulatory problems. And, um, and, and one of his sons looks around. He, he looks at David in David's uh, dying state. And then he looks at the heir apparent, which was Solomon. Solomon, most historians tell us, were, were somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. And so Adonai just says, Dad's too old and my brother's too young. It's my turn. And so he decides to proclaim himself as king. And uh, David, in his dying days, has to go through yet another attempt at an overthrow on his kingdom. He's still reaping. He's... Are you hearing me? He is still, when he's about to die, he's still reaping from one sin. See, listen, listen, listen. And, and I'm going to, I know I'm still reviewing. I, don't have, I can't spend a lot of time in review. But it is imperative that we understand that a few moments of pleasure can bring years of pain. David had one affair, and he paid for it the rest of his life, literally to his dying days. See, we, we and we've been conditioned. This is the way that, that people are being raised today, is to live for the moment. That's the way people are being raised. Live for the moment. If it feels good, do it. Now, I'm going to tell you, it may feel good now, but it may not feel so good. In a year, or two years, or ten, or twenty, or forty. Well, praise God. All right. Uh, so Adonijah decided to try to overthrow the kingdom, and um, I, I, don't, I don't have time to go through. I've got to hurry. Just suffice it to say that that, that was all thwarted, 
And Adonijah pled for mercy and then later showed there was still wickedness in his heart and he was put to death. And Solomon was made king even as a young man. Again, we don't know for sure how old he was. We can feel very confident he was less than 20 years old at the time that he took uh, the throne. Uh, and so he was just a very, very young man. Amen. Uh, chapter 2 talks about David's deathbed charge to Solomon. And we pointed out to you how that the main thing that David said to Solomon above everything else, uh, he, he said to him, you need to keep the commands of God. And if you do, God will bless you. And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And David knew that. by This was the voice of experience. You know, that's so hard sometimes. You young people that are here, it's so hard sometimes to accept that. You know, your parents get to talking to you, and you know of mistakes they made and things they did wrong. You think, well, you did it. Well, you did it. Why can't I? Yeah, but, you know, we've had to pay for it. We're trying to keep you from having to pay the price we've paid. It was the voice of experience that was speaking. Solomon, please, whatever you do, obey God. It's cost me, Solomon. It has cost me. I had 20 wonderful years as king, and then I had 20 of the most horrible years anybody could ever imagine. 20 years because I disobeyed God one time and repented and found forgiveness. Did he or not? He repented and found forgiveness, but he still paid for it. See, again, especially apostolic young people sometimes, that, and old people can get this idea too. None of us are exempt. We get this attitude, well, I'll go ahead and do it, and then I'll repent and God will forgive me. Yeah, 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 yeah. God may, may forgive you. But that doesn't mean you're going to be exempt from paying for what you've done. You know, I never, I, and I had somebody say this, and I've got to get into my notes. But I had somebody tell me one time, said, I don't like, this, was, this, was, this wasn't anybody in the church, all right? So before you just gasp and have a stroke, hear me out. I was trying to teach a sinner a Bible study. And I said something about the Apostle Paul. And the lady said, I don't like the Apostle Paul. I said, really, why? She said, because of all the terrible things he did, and then he comes and repents, and he just never has to pay for any of it. So, oh, wait, wait, just a minute. You don't know his story. You know, I don't find in Acts chapter 7 where Saul threw one rock at Stephen. I don't find where he ever threw the first rock at Stephen. But he held the coats of those who did. But do you know that there were multiple times that Saul was stoned? Don't tell me he didn't pay for what he did. All of the times that he had God's people beaten... There were times that he himself were beaten. The maximum of 39 stripes put upon his back. Five, five times he had his back laid open with 39 stripes. Five times. 
Don't tell me he didn't pay a price. Was he forgiven? Yes. And this is what this is what you've got. And again, I, I'm gonna tell you, I I blame, there's a lot of blame to be spread around for why we are in the condition we're in. But part of the blame rests solely on the shoulders of the church. Because they are teaching people God's grace, God's grace, God's God loves, God loves. You, you know, God doesn't you just forget all that. It doesn't matter. You just do what you want to, it's all right. What a bunch of nonsense. Whatsoever a man soweth that will he also reap. And so we need to understand. Now there are times, thank God for his mercy. There are times that folks do things and God is merciful. But we are not guaranteed that God will spare us the consequence of the choices we make. Oh, help me, Jesus. That's really not too far off today's subject because we're going to try to talk about Solomon and what he did if I can ever get there. Um, so, at, at, let me just let me just fast forward through some of this. Adonijah uh, shows himself wicked, and Solomon ends up having him put to death. And, and um, at some point after this, Solomon goes to Gibeon to offer sacrifices to the Lord. God appears to him in a dream. I think this is where we actually closed out last week. God appears to Solomon in a dream and said, "Ask whatever you want from God." And God was so moved by the fact that Solomon did not ask for riches. He did not ask for fame. He did not ask for the life of his enemies, which are things most people would ask for. Hello? Um, that God said, I'm not only going to give you what you did ask for, but I'm going to give it to you in measure beyond what I will ever give to any other man. All Solomon asked for was an understanding heart that he might be able to lead the people. He's a young man. Remember, he's a young man, maybe 20 years old. And, and he says, God, I don't, I don't know how to be a king. I don't know how to lead the people. I, I, don't, I don't have it in me. And God was so moved that that's the only thing Solomon asked for, that God said, I'm going to give you wisdom that exceeds that any man's had up until this point and that any man will ever have after this point. Nobody is going to match you in the wisdom that I am going to impart to you. Furthermore, I'm going to give you riches, I'm going to give you fame, I am going to subject your enemies to you, I'm going to do things for you because you're asking the right request. And I pointed out to you last week that our prayers, our prayers are important to God and the way we pray says so much about our character. Amen. Amen. So, uh, the remainder of that chapter shows an example of Solomon's wisdom that concludes with the statement that all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged. They feared the king. They saw the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. And then chapter 4. All right, let's pick up here. Chapter 4 um, opens with a list of some of the leaders of Solomon, but it concludes with uh, a few things, and I, uh, we're going to skip through some of this again for time's sake, but verse 29, chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding 
exceeding much and largeness of heart. Verse 30. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of wisdom all the children of the East Country. The wisdom of all the children of the East Country. And all the wisdom of Egypt. All right, let's just start with verse 31. For he was wiser than all he was, men. All right, he was wiser than all men. Let's go to verse 32. And he spake 3,000 proverbs. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. And his songs and were his a thousand songs and five. And his songs were a thousand and five. Verse 34. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon. Now that's 33. Let's go to 34. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of all the earth. All people came to hear his wisdom from all the kings of the earth. Which had heard which had of heard his wisdom. About. It's just a confirmation that God kept his word. How many of you know God always keeps his word? God always keeps his word. It is impossible for God to lie. Amen. All right, chapter 5 then, we, we are now uh, being told in chapter 5 about the preparations that Solomon makes for the building of the temple. He, he first sends off to King Hiram, who was the king of Tyre. Uh, Hiram had been a friend to Solomon's dad, David. Uh, Hiram had sent cedars uh, to uh, his dad. Cedars grew in Tyre. Uh, they were not common to the land of Israel, but they were much more sturdy wood, a much more beautiful wood than what did grow in Israel. And Hiram had sent cedar trees to David. David had built a house. In fact, if you remember back, the thing that David said bothered him is that I dwell in a house of cedars. Anybody remember that? That's what David said. I dwell in a house of cedars while the, while the ark of God is in a tent. And that bothered David. That bothered David. Well, the cedars had come from Hiram, king of Tyre. And so Solomon, knowing that Hiram had been a friend to his father, wrote a letter to him. And I find this letter interesting. Again, you know, I don't know what you find interesting. But I find this interesting. Uh, the letter that Solomon wrote. Now, you've got to remember, <clears throat> Hiram was a pagan. He was an idolater. He worshipped false gods. All right? But he was a friend to, to, to David, Solomon's dad. Now Solomon has a choice. You know, I know he worships false gods. So maybe the best thing to do is just write a real polite letter. Thank you for your friendship to my dad. Uh, would you be so kind as to let me have a few cedar trees? You're a wonderful king. I hope things go well for you. Uh, sincerely, your friend Solomon. You know, that, that would have been a nice way to go about writing this letter. But I want you to see the letter that he wrote. Listen to this. Second, uh, we don't get the details in 1 Kings. We've got to skip ahead to 2 Chronicles to actually read the details of the letter. So we're going to read this letter. 2 Chronicles 2, verses 4 through 6. Listen to this. Behold, I built a house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him and to burn and to burn before him sweet Okay, so he's, he's telling me, I'm getting ready to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. And, and he says, here's the reasons why. Let's go to verse 5. And the house which I built and, and is I'm great. And I'm not building just any house. I'm going to build a great house. Why? For great is our God above because all Because great is our God above all gods. 
Now look, he appreciates Hiram's friendship and he knows there's a good chance he may lose this business deal. But Solomon at this point is so in love with God, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He wants everybody to know the God he serves is above every other God that anybody could ever serve. In fact, he's so great. Read verse 6. But who is able to build, who is able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven, and, Seeing the heaven, the heaven, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Now listen, he's talking to people that build houses for their gods all the time. Their gods sit in these houses and have room to spare. But Solomon says, the God I serve. Now I'm saying I'm going to build him a house, but I want you to understand something. God's not going to fit in the house I build. The God I serve, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him. What a way to make a deal with a heathen, huh? But I want to show you the response that Hiram sends back. Second Chronicles chapter 2 verse 12. Hiram said moreover, Blessed be Blessed the Lord God of Israel. Be the Lord God of Israel. That made heaven that and earth. Made heaven and earth. I'm going to tell you, Hiram was not a convert by any stretch of the imagination. However, he was not offended at what Solomon said. And even acknowledged there is something about the God of the Jews that our God cannot compare. You know what, apostolics? We don't have one thing to be ashamed of. I don't care what the world says about us. I don't care what anybody else has to say. There is no reason for us to be hanging our heads. Oh, my wife and I, we went down to uh, preach for Brother Michael Roach in, in uh, Texas. And he actually put us up at a, a bed and breakfast. It was a unique experience. And, and there was a family that was there. They had come in for some kind. It wasn't really a funeral, but they were burying the ashes of someone, that uh, a family member that had passed away and had been cremated. And so the family had all gotten together, and many of them were staying at this bed and breakfast. And we came in one morning, and, and they're all around the table. My wife and I sit down, and, you know, we made our pleasantries and spoke and whatever. And, and the lady that runs the bed and breakfast came in and set this meal down in front of us, and and my wife and I are looking at each other, and the family's all just talking and talking, and, you know, they're all just carrying on. And finally I said, um, would you all excuse us for just a minute? And uh, we bowed our heads and prayed over the meal. Listen, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. We don't have anything to be embarrassed about. You hear me? There's not a reason in the world why we should have to try to hide who we are and what we are. This, this is why it bothers me when, when Pentecostal young people start looking at how Hollywood dresses or how the sports world dresses and, and, and they want to meet the standard technically, but they want to appear as much like the world as they can. I'm bothered by that. Why are you ashamed of who you are? Why are you embarrassed by who you are? I'm telling you, we don't have anything to be embarrassed about. Our God is greater than anybody else. Our God is better than anybody else's God. That's not arrogance. That's the fact. There's no God like our God. 
Well, praise God. Hallelujah. Now, uh, I, oh, we're not going to get very far today. Um, when we talk about Solomon building this temple, you just, you just have to get an idea of the magnitude of what went on in this. The last part of chapter 5 gives us a little bit of an idea. When you compare 1 Kings chapter 5, with Second Chronicles chapter 2, which tells the same story again from a little different perspective. When you compare those two, you understand. Are you ready for this? It took more than 183,000 workers to build the temple. 183,000 That's every man, woman, boy, girl in Olathe and Shawnee and maybe Lenexa all put together. It took that many workers to build this building. That's quite an undertaking. Now, let me show you something else. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 17. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones. And they brought... What kind of stones? Great stones. What kind of stones? Great stones, all right? Costly stones. Costly stones. And huge and stones. And huge stones. To lay the foundation to of the house. To lay the foundation thereof. Now, you know that today, if you go to Israel, you go to the city of Jerusalem, you walk up on that temple mount we were talking about, some of these foundation stones are still there. Some of these stones are from 17 to 19 feet long. Others are more than 24 feet in length, 8 feet wide, and 3 or 4 feet thick. That's a great stone. One stone. One stone is 38 feet 9 inches long. One stone. Now, now to give you some perspective, this building is 60 feet wide. So you're talking almost 40 feet. You're talking two-thirds of the width of this sanctuary. One stone. That stone is the chief cornerstone of the temple. It was put in its place 3,000 years ago. And it hasn't moved. The chief cornerstone doesn't. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And are built upon the foundation. We're built on the foundation of the apostles, of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, himself being the, the He's that big stone. He's that one that no Roman army could overturn. He's that one that nobody could move. You hear me? That stone stays in place. this church think about this they didn't have bulldozers 
and earth movers and flatbed tractor trailers. They moved these rocks, these stones, by means of ox-drawn carts. I'm telling you, you, when you think about what went on in the building of this, it is a marvel at what was involved in building the house of God. Solomon had this attitude and this idea. If we're going to do something for God, let's do it right. And let's do it great because great is the God who we say lives in this house. Somebody told me the story of a, of a, uh, a preacher some years ago. Took a little church in Oklahoma. They said there were holes in the roof, holes in the wall, and just slats. Or pews didn't even have backs on them, just slatted seats for pews. And, and he went in there and immediately wanted to begin to remodel and wanted to put some nice pews in there and said, boy, the church people threw a fit. You know, this is what we've always said. We don't want to change anything. And he, he said, the, they said the pastor finally got up and said, all right, look, you love these pews? You really like them? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them home with you. I want you to get your couch out of your living room and put these in your living room instead. Get rid of the nice furniture that you're sitting on in your house and put these in there. Why should your house be better than God's house? Well, hallelujah. As we go through chapters 5 through 8, we find the dimensions, the materials, the construction of the temple. And, and it's a study in and of itself. I promise you it is. Um, it was built to be double the size of the tabernacle in, in dimensions. Um, but on the sides of the temple was three stories of rooms that would house the priests and, and uh, become uh, storage places and, and utility uh, places for the temple. So, so imagine this, a building that stands. You, this is in ancient Israel. And almost everything is one story. And they build a temple that is so high, they've got three stories of, of outer uh, rooms attached to the temple itself. But the temple is double that. Now, as far as the, the, the building of the temple itself, it really wasn't that big of a building dimension-wise. Um, in fact, the dimensions were 60 feet by 120 feet. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but that's the exact dimensions of this building. So you walk outside and you look at this building. The width of this building, the length of this building, is the width and length of the temple, not counting the outer rooms that were built to the sides, all right? But the temple... 60 feet, that's not huge. It wasn't built to be a mega church. It really wasn't. And, and there's a reason why. Because church wasn't done then like it's done now. The temple was not built to house a congregation. It was built to house God and for the priest to serve God. That's what it was there for. They had jobs. They had duties to do 
in their service to God. And that's what the temple was for. It wasn't for all of Israel to come to church. All right, so, so there was no need for it. But when, if, I mean, if we just knocked all these walls out and you had one, one large room that was 60 by 120, of course, part of that's going to be cut off uh, for the Holy of Holies. But, you know, you, you, you're, you're talking a fairly decent-sized place. And what was so important about it was not the size, but it was the elaborate, costly, highly decorative character of it, you know, all of the gold and all of the furnishings and everything that was in there when you, uh, which very few people were ever allowed in, but those who were allowed to come in and see it, the furnishings, the interior, uh, the the substantial masonry, uh, but even on the outside, the walls, the, the stones, the courts, the towers, all of that was highly impressive, highly impressive. Uh, and as I said, it was a very tall building, especially for that time. You've got these three stories that rose about, the Bible says 15 cubits. Uh, we figure that's about 22 and a half feet, these three stories. And then the temple extended another 15 cubits about above that. So you've got, in a, in a land where most houses are one story, um, you, you've, got, you've got a building that rose some 45 feet from the ground. So it, it, was, it was definitely... When you, when you got close to Jerusalem, there was one thing that everybody saw. It was the temple. Because the temple was the focal point. It was supposed to be the focal point for the kingdom of Israel. Amen. Now, um, in order to save time, I won't go through all these scriptures, but First Chronicles 28.12 tells us that David actually had the plan for the temple and said that God gave it to him. Um, that's First Chronicles 28, actually verses 12 and 19. David uh, twice is, is uh, mentioned here as having received the plans from God himself as to how this temple was to be built. Uh, so, so let's stop and think about this again, about the magnitude of this building, all right? We're talking about a building that already had all the plans drawn up, many of the materials, many of the utensils, many of the instruments were already done before Solomon ever became king. Everybody's with me. The plans are already drawn. A lot of the materials are already in place. The utensils, the instruments, the furnishings, most of those already completed. You've got over 180,000 people working. The plan's already done. Material's already there. Over 180,000 people working. And it still took them seven years to get it done. Not because of incompetence, I promise you. We're talking about how elaborate, how magnificent this house was. Seven years for almost 200,000 people to get it built when a lot of what they needed was already handed to them. But the way they did it, they didn't want a hammer, the sound of a hammer being heard there. And there were things that they didn't want done inside the temple. They didn't want to in any way defile the temple. And so the, the magnitude of what they're trying to accomplish. I'm telling you, they did it and they did it right. Seven years, seven years. 
Amen. And uh, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. We won't take the time to read it, but 1 Kings 6 and 38 says it was seven years in building. Chapter 7 then briefly mentions the building of Solomon's house, which took him 13 years to build. And I've mentioned to you before that Solomon obviously spent much more time building his own house than he did God's, which, which is problematic to me. Let me just throw in this one thing. To be fair to Solomon, let's understand too that for the temple, as I said, a lot of it was already prepared. So to be fair to him, a lot of the things for the house of God were already ready before he started building the temple. So that no doubt cut down a good bit of time. However, it still kind of bothers me that they spent more than twice as long building Solomon's house than they did God's. And I'm going to tell you, Solomon didn't do things cheap when it came to his house either. Uh, I don't know, I, it doesn't look like time's going to let us get to it, but you just, you just strictly look at the throne he built for himself. And it was pretty amazing. In fact, I'm, I'm going to skip through while we're while we're there. I'll skip through and and, and have him read some of this. Uh, this is uh, down to chapter ten, verses eighteen and twenty, uh, eighteen through twenty. Just listen. This is the throne, just the throne that Solomon built. Chapter ten, verses eighteen to twenty. Moreover, the king made a great throne. A of great ivory. throne of ivory. And overlaid it with the best gold. Overlaid with. Can you imagine ivory overlaid with gold? Read on. The throne had six steps. Six steps leading up to the throne. The top of the throne was round behind. Top of the throne was round. And there were stays on either side. Either side. Of, on the on place, the place of, the of the seat. Armrests, if you please, on either side and, of the seat. And two lions stood beside and the stays. lions stood beside the stays. So they've got these carved lions on either side of the throne. And... And twelve lions. Twelve lions stood on the one, on the side, one side and, and on, on the, the other side, side of the six open. steps. You talk about an elaborate throne. Solomon had one. So he you know, I I, I say I want to be fair to him, and I do, but I want us to understand at the same time he he did a whole lot for himself. There's no question about it. All right. Um Chapter 7, let's go back to chapter 7. As I said, talks about the building of, of Solomon's house. Chapter 8 uh, relates the dedication of the temple and to me shows one of the most beautiful things in all of Scripture. Uh, that When Solomon built this temple and got ready to dedicate it, not only was man involved in it, but, but God was involved. Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, let's read. And it came to pass when the priests were came, come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. There was so much glory in that place that the priests were not even able to do their job. I want that to happen. We've seen it a few times. And the glory of God just moved in. And you know, I've there have been times when the Holy Ghost would get to moving and, and I wouldn't be saying a word. We're just letting the Holy Ghost move. And there's folks that say, well, come on, you got to do something. We don't want dead air. No, 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 no. It's not dead air, I promise you. The air is as alive as it has ever been because it is filled with the power and the presence of God. And I'm telling you, when God moves in that way, he's going to do a whole lot more than any preacher could ever do. 
When God's glory fills a house like that, honey, there's not a thing in the world I can do to improve on it. So then verses 23 through 61 gives a very lengthy prayer of dedication offered by Solomon. And uh, verses 63 to 64 talk about the sacrifices, the offering. It's unbelievable what they offered that day. 22,000 oxen. 120,000 sheep. That's just, just, just the start. Offered burnt offerings and offerings. And uh, so it was. And then chapter 8 closes... By describing the fact that once all that's done, the power of God's fallen, they've offered their sacrifices, their offering, then Solomon had a great feast. In chapter 8, verse 65, he had a great feast, and it, uh, it lasted for two weeks. It was party time. And they had a right to celebrate. They were very happy what God had done. Chapter 9 opens with a response to, God's, uh, to Solomon's prayer that he had prayed... In the chapter before, God begins to talk to Solomon. And in that response, and and, and it's important that we catch this, chapter 9, verses 4 through 7, listen to what what happens here. I'm going to try, I'm going to try. Will you all bear with me? Will you give me just just a little bit of time? We'll try to at least finish through the life of Solomon here. But this is so important. Look look at this. This is what God says to Solomon. Chapter 9, verses 4 to 7. And if if thou wilt walk before me. Hang on. And, and, if. Solomon has asked God to put his blessing on the house and on the kingdom. And God says, if, if you'll walk before me. As David thy father walked. As David walked. In integrity of heart. Integrity of heart. And and in uprightness. To do according to to all that I have commanded thee. And will keep my statutes and my judgments. If you'll keep my judgments. Then I will establish the the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. I'll establish your throne forever. As I promised to David thy father. Saying, there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me. If. You at all turn from following me. You or your Either children. you or your children. And will not and keep you my commandments. And will not keep my commandments. And my statutes. And my statutes. Which I have set before you. But go and serve other gods. go and, and serve worship other them. gods and worship them. Then will I cut and off I'm Israel. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. Then will I cut off Israel I'm out of the land. I'm going to cut off Israel from Which the land. I have given them. Uh-huh. And this house and which I have cut off this house. For my name. Will I cast out of my sight? And Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. Can you imagine? Now look, the power of God has just fallen in this great temple. They are awed. They are, they are just blown away by how wonderful the temple is. And the power of God has come in so powerfully, the priests can't even do anything. And God immediately turns around and said, but I'm going to tell you something. If you don't live for me, I'm going to wipe this temple off the face of the earth. And he did it. We don't see it until the end of 2 Kings, but he did it. Chapter 10 tells about the visit of the Queen of Sheba, which some think is modern-day Ethiopia. Uh, She comes in. 
and uh, she had heard about what happened, and it's an amazing thing, really, because, I mean, you just don't, this kind of, even to this day, really doesn't happen much. I mean, this is a rare thing for the head of one country to fly to another country to meet with the head of that country, not to talk politics, but simply because I've heard it so great, I want to see for myself. And again, she didn't hop a jumbo jet, you know. She, she didn't get on a bus. It took a while to get from Ethiopia to Israel. And as the queen, she no doubt had quite the entourage. So it, this was an undertaking, but she went. She went. And, and let's read chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. Let's, let's read this. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's she wisdom, saw Solomon's wisdom, and the house that he had and built, the house that he'd built, and the meat of his table, the meat of his table, and the sitting of his, sitting servants, of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, the attendance of his ministers, their apparel, the way they dressed, and his cupbearers, cupbearers, and his ascent and by which he went up into the house of the Lord. Look, all this stuff was amazing her, but when she saw the way he approached the house of God, isn't that the last thing that said? Is everybody with me? The last thing that she saw was the way he went to God's house. What happened? There was no more spirit. In One man said she fainted. This was the most amazing thing she'd ever seen in her life. She was a queen. She'd seen splendor. She'd seen grandeur. She had seen wealth and opulence. When she examined the way things were in Solomon's kingdom, and then she saw the way he approached God's house, she fainted. And she said to the king, and she said to the king, "It was a true report that I heard. Everything I heard was true. In mine own land, of thy acts and of thy wisdom, howbeit I beloved I just, not I the words, not, I could not believe it." Until I, Until came, I came, and my eyes and I saw it for myself. And behold, the and half behold, was not told. The half wasn't told. You know, I gotta hurry. I gotta hurry. But let me say this: You wanna know how you're gonna? You wanna know how you're gonna see souls saved? Everybody wants to see souls saved, right? Everybody wants to see people come to church. And you wanna know how it's gonna happen? The Queen of Sheba saw a lot of things. A lot of them involved the way Solomon's servants served him. In fact, in another verse, she said, Happy are thy servants. She knew what it was to have servants waiting on her, but evidently they weren't happy doing it. They did it because they had to do it. Isn't that the way a lot of people live for God? Well, I have to live this way. Well, I have. Well, if I don't do this, the preacher's going to preach to me. Well, I don't really, Brother Rick never finds out what I did. I'm in trouble. You know, that, that, that's, but there was something about it. These men actually loved living the way they were living. And she heard that it was so great. So great. And she said, I, you know, it can't be that good. It just can't. I guess I'm going to have to go see for myself. What would happen if we hit the streets of this city 
and started telling everybody we work with and everybody we meet in the store about the wonderful things God is doing. About how great it is to live for God. About how wonderful the experience of the Holy Ghost is. Instead of feeling down and out and being mad at everybody and fussing about this and fighting about that. Hanging our head. What would happen if we'd hit the street and say, man, we got the greatest thing going. You ain't never seen church till you've been to our place. You can't imagine what it's like when you come to New Life. You just can't even begin to fathom the glory of God that falls in us. What would happen if we started putting that kind of word out? But the caveat is this. If we put that word out and then they come in here and we set kind of like some of you have set this morning. They're not going to have the response the Queen of Sheba did. She said the half has not been told. They're going to come in and say somebody exaggerated. You know, church, I've said this. I've said this for 13 and a half years. I'm going to keep saying it for another 13 and a half and however much longer God allows me to, to be around here. I'm going to keep telling you. You want to know the real, the real, the real key to seeing people pray through, you want to know the real key? It's very simple. When we come to church, let's have good church. I said when we get to church, let's have church. Let's quit pretending we're in church. Let's quit sleeping through church. Let's get in here and have church. If we'll worship like we're supposed to worship. If we'll shout like we're supposed to shout. If we'll let God do what He wants to do. I'll tell you, if we'll start having church, we'll see people praying through. <sighs> well, hallelujah. How do I get through this in seven minutes? Ah. Uh, she was, she was just, she was floored by it all. She said, I, I, I'm telling you, the half wasn't even, the half wasn't even told me of how wonderful it really is around here. And she was so impressed by it. Now, um, chapter 10, we've already talked about the throne that Solomon built. We also find another statement of the greatness of Solomon's wisdom. Chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Let's catch this real quick. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And the, all the earth sought and everyone, to Solomon. And everyone everywhere came to Solomon. To hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Isn't that amazing? Again, I mean, we're talking, it was not an easy thing to come to Israel. But everyone around the world was coming to Solomon. Now, this is the way that it ends up in chapter 10. Everything's going great. I mean, if we, if we could end 1 Kings at chapter 10, we'd say, man, what an awesome book. What a great man Solomon was. But chapter 11, things change. Chapter 11, in spite of all the wonderful things that were said about Solomon up to this point, is a tragic commentary that begins in chapter 11. Let's, let's start reading with verse 1. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the Pharaoh, daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, 
of the nations concerning you know, which the Lord... Now, 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 hang on. It's bad enough that Solomon was in direct violation of the law. We pointed this out before. Way back before Israel ever had a king, God used Moses, spoke to Moses, told him to put it in the law that when the day comes you have a king, he shall not take many wives. It was, it was already in the law. In spite of that, Solomon went ahead and took many wives. Now, that's bad enough. But you want to know what's worse? They weren't women that were Jews. They didn't serve the God of Israel. These were women of the nations concerning which the Lord said to the children of Israel, Don't do it! Not just the king, no Jew was supposed to marry these women. Let me tell you something. I've heard it and heard it and heard it. Well, I'm going to win him to God. No, you won't. He's going to win you to his God. She's going to win you to her God. Because the very fact that you're doing it is a compromise of the principles of Scripture. The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so the instant you start dating and, and, and seeing and writing to and flirting with people that are not children of God, I'm telling you, at that moment you've already compromised your principles. At that moment, you've already lost the battle. You're not going to win them. You've already lost. Oh, but they're hungry for God. How many have said that before? If they're hungry for God, tell them they're going to have to come to church. I, you know what you ought to do? Just lay it out plain and simple. Here's what the Bible says. As far as I can see, I'm a believer. You're not. I'm sorry. It's done. You come to church. You pray through to the Holy Ghost. You prove yourself sitting on the pew. When all that's said and done, we'll talk about it. Until then, it's over, honey. And why did God say, why did God say don't do it? Because they surely, surely God said. He didn't say maybe, he said surely. God said surely they'll turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clave unto these in love. On. I, oh, I wish I had a little bit more time. But look, 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 look. And he had 700 wives. 700 wives. Princesses and 300 concubines. God have mercy. A thousand mother-in-laws. <laughs> I said it. You'll pay for your decisions. Help us, Jesus. He was getting a little bit, little, little, little tight here. All right, all right, all right. Look, all right. 
700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And what happened? What happened? And his wives turned away his His wives turned away his heart, just like God said they would. How do we know that? Verse 4. For it came to pass, because when, Solomon it came to pass old, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after their gods. Uh-huh. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, right. as, it don't, as was the heart of David his right, father. Right, right, right. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth. Solomon went after Ashtaroth. The goddess of the Zidonians. Solomon, hang on a minute. After witnessing, after God appearing to him in visions, after seeing the glory of God fill that temple, after all of that, Solomon is now worshiping false gods. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. It won't affect you. Ashtaroth. The goddess of the Zizonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. Verse 6. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the evil. Lord. And went not fully after the did Lord. Not go fully after as God. As did David his father. Then did Solomon build a then high place. Solomon built a high place. For Chemosh. For Chemosh. The abomination of Moab. Do you know what they did? Do you know what they did to Chemosh? Do you know what they did? The Bible calls the abominable. Do you know what they did? You know how they worshipped this God? They took their own children and offered them as burnt sacrifices. And Solomon built the place for them to do it. Where? Where? In the hill that is in before the hill Jerusalem. Before Jerusalem. And, and for Molech. Mo- they did the same thing to Molech. Same thing for Molech. The abomination of the children of Ammon. Yeah. And likewise did he likewise for did all he. his strange wives. Do you understand? Do you understand? He's building these. These places for them to offer to. And his own wives are followers of this religion. What does that mean? Yeah. His own kids are going to be burned in the fire. Don't, I'm tell, don't you tell me you can mess around with some little floosy out there. Think you're going to survive. You're not going to. I'm telling you, you're not going to survive. You hear this preacher? You will not survive. Your spirituality will not survive that. I'm telling you what you better do. If you're really interested in finding a mate, I'm going to tell you what you better do. You better start searching the altars. You go off to these youth camps and these meetings, start watching the altars. Find out who's loving God. I'm telling you, somebody that's got a commitment to God will have a commitment to you. But if they don't have a commitment to God, there's a good chance they're not going to be committed to you either. Yeah, 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 there have been a few that have done it and come back to God. And they've paid and they've paid and they've paid. And many of them have lost their kids. 
And so, so, this was verse 8. This was verse 8, so then we get to where our text was, verse 9. This is no surprise. Read. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his yeah, heart was turned yeah, from the Lord God You understand God that text a little better now? God was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared to him twice. And I'm telling you, the judgment was far-reaching. Uh, verses 11 through 13, God said, because you've done these things, I'm going to rend the kingdom from you. We read it in our text. I'm not taking the time to read it now. But he said, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hand, and I'm going to give it. Now, this is important. I will. Go ahead and put verse 11 up there, because this one point's important, and i got to go on. But i, I got to quit. But he says at the end of it, I will rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy, what? And that's exactly who got the ten tribes. One of Solomon's servants named Jeroboam. God said, I'm going to give it to thy servant. All right. And then he explains then that he said, I'm going to, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to do it in your hand, not in your time because of David. But I am going to do it to your son. And I'm going to give you a tribe and I'm going to give Jerusalem a tribe. But the other ten tribes I'm sending out of here. And I'm going to give those ten to your servant. And uh, a prophet by the name of Ahijah comes along and he finds one of Solomon's leader. The man's name was Jeroboam and prophetically showed him he was going to reign over the ten tribes. Now Solomon got wind of that and Solomon got angry. Solomon's the one who told us that jealousy is as cruel as a grave and Solomon knew that firsthand. He finds out somebody's just been told they're the one. That's the servant that's going to take the kingdom. So Solomon decides he's going to kill him. Which is, for all of his wisdom, that was stupid. You know, when God says something, you're not going to beat God out of his plan. Well, Jeroboam fled to Egypt and he stayed there until word came that Solomon died. And then Jeroboam came back. Uh, the chapter chapter 11 closes. This is where I'm going to close. Go ahead and come if you would. Chapter 11 closes then with Solomon's death. Uh, verses at 42 and 43. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, Rehoboam his, his son, son reigned in his stead. In his stead. How tragic. How tragic. One who was handed so much fell so far. I've seen it happen. You hear me, church? I've seen men dedicate their lives to building a church for righteousness, holiness, separation, truth, apostolic doctrine. Spend their lives building a solid foundation. I was with a man just the other night who was telling me about his home church and what a strong, solid church it used to be. And now it's gone so far from where it once was because the man who worked so hard to build it up turned it over to someone who didn't appreciate it. And they lost everything they ever had. Solomon was handed the greatest opportunity literally in the world handed to him handed
handed to him on a silver platter. But he made a tragic error in judgment. You know how sad that he had wisdom that exceeded all wisdom when it came to leading the people of Israel. But he didn't have the smarts to live for God. I don't care what you attain in this life. You hear me? I don't care what you attain in this life. I don't care how much fame, fortune. I, I don't care. I don't care. You don't live for God. You're a fool. I'm telling you, God will take your life and make something meaningful out of it if you'll give it to Him. But if you're going to hang on to it, you're going to make a mess out of it. Yeah, You might think you're in control, but honey, you're not in control. You hear me? You're not in control. There's going to be a day when you're going to remember the words of this preacher. And there's going to be a day, your life, you're going to look around at it and say, God, what a mess I have made. Solomon was handed so much. Go ahead and play if you would. He was handed so much. So much. And he threw it all away. Because he wanted what he wanted. Solomon. Solomon should have pinned the words that became famous a generation or two ago. Sung by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Yeah, Solomon. Solomon should have written that song with all the others he wrote. And I'm going to tell you what. The thing is, he did it his way all right. And there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Yeah, do it your way. Live it your way. Go ahead. But your way is the wrong way. You better do it God's way. A stand this morning. I know I've gone over time, but I'm telling you, I think maybe it'd be good if we would find a place to pray. I don't want to live my life my way. I don't want to make a mess out of my life. I want to do things God's way. The Bible said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man if be a overtaken, man be overtaken in a fault, you which are, you spiritual, which are spiritual, restore such restore a such one, one. spirit of meekness. Yes, consider thyself that's what I want to tell you today that's what I want to close with we can talk about Solomon we can shake our head over Solomon but the point is you better think about yourself where you're headed and what's going to happen at the end of your life what's going to be the result of you doing things your way it's not going to be pleasant. You need to give your life to God. You need to surrender to God.